So would you please turn with me this morning to the book of Matthew. So the first book of the New Testament, and we're going to be reading from that this morning. And it's a passage most of you would be quite familiar with. It is about the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. So would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 4 as we read it together. We're reading Matthew chapter 4 verses 1 to 11 and I'm reading from the New King James Version. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights afterwards, he was hungry. Now, when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. And Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. And again the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give to you, if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. And then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. May the Lord bless his eternal, unchanging word to our hearing. Now, it's worth noting that just prior to this passage that we've just read, these events, that another very significant event happened just prior to that. And Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. And we see all three members of the divine Godhead present in that hallowed occasion. The scripture records that when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately out of the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Holy Spirit, sorry, the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice from heaven came and saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Matthew 3, 16 to 17. So the father's command to hear the son, the spirit's vindication and empowerment officially inaugurated Christ's ministry. And this is a pivotal point. Now the gloves are off and the opposition to Christ's ministry will come in earnest. And you know, there's something about baptism that generates great opposition even today. And it's particularly in places where Christians are unwelcome and undesirable. You know, Christians are tolerated up to a certain point, And then when they get baptized, all hell literally breaks loose. They are hounded. They are opposed. They're even killed, and sometimes by members of their very own families. So we read that straight after his baptism, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. We now have a direct confrontation with Satan. The word translated tempt or tempted, the Greek parazo, occurs 35 times in the New Testament. And it can have two meanings. Firstly, it can mean to test or to prove, including trials and afflictions sent by God. For example, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, 
offered up Isaac, Hebrews 11. But it can also mean to solicit evil. Someone put it this way, God will give you tests he wants you to pass and the devil will give you tests he wants you to fail. So Satan's audacious attempts to lure Jesus into sin are clearly seen in this text that we read. But why should the Holy Spirit lead Jesus into an encounter of testing by the devil, especially since God had just sent his approval? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Well, what we need to keep in mind here is that Jesus is not only the beloved son of God, but also the son of man. This, this term, the son of man, is used by Jesus primarily in the New Testament when he's referring to himself. And we see in the Gospel of Luke that the genealogy goes back all the way to the first man, Adam, commonly referred to as the first Adam. But in 1 Corinthians 15.45, it also refers to the last Adam, which is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Both the first Adam and the last Adam had, had been tempted by the devil but the outcomes of their temptations were very different. As far as the first Adam, the book of Genesis records that the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being, Genesis 2.7. And then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The tempter, Satan, soon arrives on the scene in the form of a serpent and cunningly targets Eve, the wife of the, the, that God had created for Adam. And he says to her, Has God indeed said you shall not eat from every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat of it, and you shall not touch it, lest you die. And then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit, and she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together to make themselves coverings. Genesis 3, 1-7. to So Adam and Eve succumbed to Satan's temptation to eat the forbidden fruit. And now their eyes were opened to the meaning of guilt. Sin had destroyed their innocence, and now they needed to sow fig leaves to hide their shame. And while it is true that chronologically Eve had sinned before Adam, the Bible clearly places the blame on Adam. He was the one ultimately responsible. And the tragic outcome of yielding to Satan's temptation would be numerous and far-reaching, affecting all of mankind. Sin would now affect every aspect of the lives of all of Adam's future descendants. So, to answer the question as to why the Holy Spirit would lead Jesus into an encounter with Satan, firstly, it was to prove to all creation that Jesus, the second Adam, is the conqueror. The first Adam was tempted by Jesus in the perfect, 
surroundings of the Garden of Eden. He lived in an ideal environment, had absolutely everything he could ever need, but he was conquered by Satan's temptation. The second Adam, Jesus, was tempted into Judean desert, a miserable place that looked like nature had suffered some sort of violent convulsion there. It's really horrible. And he was famished for 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, but he did not yield to Satan's temptation. He won the battle and he would go on to win the war. So what are the practical lessons for us as we carefully examine the enemy's tactics in both instances? Surprisingly, we can see that the devil's basic tactics are fairly predictable. They worked so well in the Garden of Eden and he's employed them successfully ever since. The first temptation involved questioning the love and the will of God. Jesus had been fasting for 40 days, 40 nights. He was hungry. And just by the way, the the number 40 is often used in Scripture in association with tempting. For instance, in Hebrews 3, 7 to 9, it says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me and tried me and saw my works for 40 years. So Satan comes to Jesus and he says, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. Now, Satan knows very well that Jesus is the son of God. There's no, there's no disputing that here. We, we just take it for granted. This was like saying to a motor mechanic, you're a mechanic, fix your car. There's no, there's, there, but there's a subtle suggestion here that if Jesus' father really loved him, then it would, it would not allow, it would not be his will to allow him to suffer in this way. Satan is implying that Jesus is, sorry, Satan is implying to Jesus that God is somehow holding out on him. Now, can you hear an echo of the tempter's words to Eve in the garden? God said they would die if they ate from the tree. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You will be like God, knowing good from evil. Satan is in the business of trying to make people believe that God doesn't really love them. And he's very good at it. Satan often targets what 1 John 2 calls our craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything that we see and pride in life and achievement and possessions. And he tries to convince us that if we miss out on any of these things, then it proves that God doesn't really care for us. You know, it reminds me of a story um, that happened, um, actual event that happened when Rosemary and I were invited to a wedding a few years ago by some friends. And at the reception, we were seated next to a pastor and his wife. And from memory, I think this pastor had just recently sort of inherited a large congregational church from a previous pastor. And uh, as we chatted, you know, I said, you know, how's your church going? You know, as you do. And uh, I was quite surprised when he told me that over the previous year, a large number of people had left. Now, this was about the time of the GFC, the, the global financial crisis. And I asked him why the people had left. You know, I thought there might have been a church split or something like that. Well, he told me that he believed the main reason was the GFC. I said, really? So he explained to me that many of the people that he inherited seemed to have the idea that if God really cared for them, 
he wouldn't have allowed their wealth to be decimated. They were taught that God loved them, that God had a wonderful plan for their life. This was the gospel taught in that church. So, you know, they were enjoying their best life now. And when the global financial crisis hit them hard financially, they couldn't any longer believe that God cared for them, and they just walked away. So it's important that we don't give people the false impression that Christians are exempt from trials and from suffering. Nowhere in the Bible does it encourage us to seek a pathway of comfort and material possessions. Jesus said, therefore, don't worry uh, about what shall we eat and what shall we drink and what shall we wear. For after these things, the, the unbelievers, the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows the things you need. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you, Matthew 6. Now this all ties in with another suggestion that Satan puts to Jesus. He tempts him to use his divine power to meet his own needs. Command these stones to become bread, Jesus. Now there's no, no doubt at all that Jesus could have commanded the stones to become bread. There were many occasions in the scriptures where Jesus used his divine power. But in doing so, he would have been acting outside of his father's will. In John 5.30, it says, I do not come to seek my own will, but the, but the will of the father who sent me. And John 6, 6.38 says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus answers Satan's suggestion by quoting scripture. He uses the last part of Deuteronomy 8.3, but we're going to look at um, 8.2-3 to get the full setting. It says, And you shall remember the Lord your God who led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and to test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he may make you know that man, and this is the, the, one, the uh, part that Jesus quoted, that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So we see a very important principle here. Jesus did not use his divine powers to overcome Satan. That's exactly what Satan wanted him to do. Instead, he used a weapon available to all of us today the power and authority of God's word. We will observe how every temptation Satan hurled in Jesus' way was resisted with the words, it is written. The word of the living God is the most powerful weapon against the temptations of the devil. The psalmist declares in Psalm 119.11, your word I have hidden in my heart that I may not sin against you. <clears throat> Using God's own word in any spiritual conflict ensures that we are relying on God's power and not our own. If we presume on power or authority outside of God's word, we risk sinning against God. And not only that, we risk being prevailed against and even humiliated. Listen how it turned out for the sons of some Jewish priests in the book of Acts when they took it upon themselves to deal with evil spirits. Acts 19, 13 to 16 tells us the story. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of, Jesus, of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. 
saying, we exercise you by the Jesus that Paul preaches. And there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? What a put down. But there was worse to come. Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them and prevailed against them. And so they fled out of that house naked and wounded. When you encounter any spiritual conflict, rely on the power of God's word. Let's now move on to the second temptation. Having seen the first temptation shattered by God's word, Satan has the audacity to try and tempt Jesus into sin by using scripture for his own ends. He takes Jesus to the holy city and he sets him upon the pinnacle of the temple, some 150 meters above the Kidron Valley. And he says to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he shall give angels charge over you. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. Satan absolutely mutilates a part of Psalm 91 where God promises to take care of his people and dares Jesus to prove God's faithfulness in a spectacular way. He's implying that since man lives by, by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, Jesus, you should practice what you preach. Jump off the temple. Uh, the angels will catch you, you know, you won't get hurt, it'll be okay, don't worry. But of course, he's quoting scripture out of context. He completely twists its meaning. He uses a passage which is about trusting God in an attempt to justify tempting God. He wants Jesus to create a crisis that did not previously exist to test whether or not God will rescue him from that crisis. This is simply presuming upon God to rescue him from intentional sin. Jesus doesn't fall for this temptation either. He answers by quoting Deuteronomy 6.16. It is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. When we presume we can get God to do spectacular wonders and miracles on our behalf, we are in fact tempting him. This is always a most grievous evil, and especially when signs and wonders aren't even true. The book of Hebrews says that our great salvation was first announced by the Lord Jesus himself and then delivered to us by those who heard him speak. And God confirmed the message by giving signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit whenever he chose. Hebrews 2. So there are real signs, there are real wonders, there are real miracles, and they happen whenever the Holy Spirit chooses. But the scriptures also warn us that the coming of the lawless ones is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. 2 Thessalonians 2.9 Satan has successfully tempted many in the professing church to chase after false signs, false wonders, false miracles instead of trusting God and his word. Ironically, as much as these people like to convince others that they're people of great faith, they're actually people of great doubt. Always looking for proof, but never finding it, because they do not believe the truth revealed in God's word. Let's never become like that, because 
the fate of people like that is truly frightening. Listen to this, 2 Thessalonians 2, 11 to 12. It says, and for this reason, God will send them strong delusion. God will send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth and had pleasure in unrighteousness. When God sends you a strong delusion, that's not a delusion you can recover from. Before we move on, there is a further aspect of the second temptation I also want us to consider. Many reputable Bible scholars consider Psalm 91, which, which the devil quoted from, is a messianic psalm, meaning it's a psalm about the father speaking concerning the son. So even though this psalm can apply to all believers in, in a limited way, and it's quoted a lot, it's primarily about Jesus, which is probably why Satan chose to quote it. Now, if this is true, and on balance, I, I believe it is, um, then what the devil was aiming for here is to tempt Jesus into performing a sensational stunt in order to demonstrate that he was the Messiah. Satan tempts Jesus to seek after personal glory in disregard of the Father's will. One commentator has remarked, this temptation comes to us in the desire to attain religious prominence apart from the fellowship of his suffering. We seek great things for ourselves, then run and hide when difficulties come our way. When we ignore God's will and exalt ourselves, we tempt God. God had promised to preserve the Messiah, but that guarantee presupposed living in God's will. To claim the promise in an act of disobedience would be tempting God. The time would come when Jesus would be revealed as Messiah, but the cross must come first. The altar of sacrifice always precedes the throne of glory. Jesus would await God's time and accomplish God's will. This ties in with the third temptation. Satan takes Jesus up to an exceedingly high mountain and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And then he offers Jesus a shortcut to his kingdom. He said to him, all these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Satan was in effect saying, just prostrate yourself before me in an act of homage, Jesus, and you can have all the glory without any of the suffering. Satan has always wanted to be like God and to be worshipped. Isaiah 14 reveals his insane, outrageous ambition. Satan, also known as Lucifer, says to himself in this passage, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. And Satan knows that if he can get Jesus to worship him, it would be tantamount to acknowledging him as God. Indeed, worshipping the creature rather than the creator is the falsehood that rules this world. You look at Romans 1.25. Now, in one particular sense, the, the kingdoms of the world do belong to Satan at present. 2 Corinthians 4.4 calls Satan the god of this age. The Apostle John tells us that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one, 1 John 5. Jesus himself referred to Satan as the ruler of this world in John 12 and John 14. So Satan's offer to give the kingdoms of the world to Jesus was not just wishful thinking, it was, it was a real offer. But Jesus didn't need Satan's offer. The Father had already promised the kingdoms of this world will ultimately 
belong to the Son. In Psalm 2, verse 8, the Father says to the Son, Only ask, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the whole earth as your possession. Now, we frequently, in the, in the Old Testament, we have this mention of all earthly rule passing on in the, into the hands of God. For example, Ezekiel chapter 21, Daniel chapter 2, 4, 6, 7, and Zechariah chapter 14. And when Jesus comes back in his glory as the king of kings, the kingdoms of this world will become his. Revelation eleven fourteen foretells of this time. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Jesus would not violate God's timetable, nor would he ever worship Satan. In his reply to Satan, Jesus once again quotes from Scripture, Deuteronomy 6.13. Away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. The devil made no mention of serving, but Jesus knew that worship and service are inseparable. And for us, this raises some important questions. Are we bartering away our spiritual birthright for the passing glory of this world and worshipping and serving all manner of earthly things rather than our creator. We must contemplate this question in light of God's word and order our lives according to instructions in his word. After Jesus had successfully rebutted Satan's temptation, we are told, then the devil left him and behold, angels came and ministered to him. And the same account of this in Luke's gospel says, Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Luke 4.13. So we learn here that temptation is not a one-off thing that disappears after we win a battle. Jesus had won a spectacular battle over, over Satan in this instance, but Satan kept on looking for opportunities to trip him up. We see in Matthew 16 how Satan cunningly attempted to use Peter to persuade Jesus to abandon the cross. It says, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and raised on the third day. But Peter took him aside and he began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, that this should happen to you. But he turned aside and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offence to me, for you are mindful of the things of God, not mindful of the things of God, but the things of man. We must be aware that Satan is a master tempter and manipulator. He will use all manner of dirty tricks to tempt us, including manipulating those who are closest to us. And he is incredibly persistent in trying to divert Christians from their divine mission, proclaiming Jesus as the Saviour and the only way to God. But we are so thankful that Satan could not persuade our Lord to abort his divine mission. If Satan could have tempted Jesus to bypass the cross, there would be no salvation, no good news, no gospel. So in the time we have left, I want to speak about what is the gospel? What is the good news of Jesus Christ? The glorious gospel of Christ originates in the grace of the one true God who determined 
to give life to sinful, rebellious people who did not deserve it. This is a direct contradiction to every other religious belief, all of which teach that the way to obtain favor with deity is through good works. But the Bible says that all people uh, are like this. They have all turned aside. They have all together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. None. None at all. Romans 3.12. As we mentioned previously, when Adam and Eve, our common forefathers, yielded to Satan's temptations in the Garden of Eden, sin came into the world. And sin affected every aspect of the lives of Adam's descendants. Every person born into the world is a helpless, hopeless sinner at enmity with God and totally unable to meet God's demand for perfect righteousness. And I want to emphasize this, that God requires perfect righteousness. In other words, sinlessness. You know, some people are more morally upright than others, but all people sin. And even one little sin will disqualify you from being in right standing with God. You must not think that you are able to face God on the day of judgment and expect that God will receive you because overall, you know, you didn't sin all that much. Say again, God requires perfect righteousness. And if you say that's impossible, you're absolutely right. The most righteous human being that ever lived was not sinless. So the entire sorry state of humanity seemed hopeless until God sent his son, Jesus Christ, on a rescue mission. John 3.16, perhaps one of the best known verses in the Bible, says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The basis on which God rescues hopeless sinners, both Jews and Gentiles, is the gospel or the good news about Christ. The writer of the book of Romans in the Bible says, For I am not ashamed of the good news about Christ. It is the power of God, saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and then the Gentile. This good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. Romans 1, 16 to 17 NLT. God saved people from condemnation through faith. Faith believes in what Jesus achieved when he fulfilled his earthly rescue mission. His mission was to die on the cross on behalf of hopeless sinners who could never attain to the perfect righteousness that God required. You see, God sacrificed his son, his perfect, sinless son, pouring out all of his righteous anger against sinners on him. He imputed or, or attributed to Jesus the sins of all the people who would, he would ever rescue from eternal punishment. And while Jesus would take the penalty due to guilty sinners upon himself, they, in exchange, would receive Jesus' perfect righteousness by putting their faith in his sacrifice on their behalf. The Bible says, For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be an offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 In this way, could God could demonstrate his own righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. You see, 
God cannot just simply forgive sin. He can't just sweep it under the carpet and forget it ever happened and say, well, look, let's just, let's just move on. Let's just deal with that. If he did that, you know, he, he would not be just. What, what would we think if a convicted criminal showed up at sentences, sentencing and, a, and the presiding judge said, look, let's just let bygones be bygones? That would be outrageous. How would a, a, he would not be a righteous judge? And how much less would our holy and righteous God possibly leave sin unpunished? Shall not the judge of all the earth do justly? Genesis 18.25 If God left sin unpunished, he would be unrighteous and he would be unjust. In fact, he would no longer be fit to sit on his throne. Listen to Psalm 89.14 Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Without righteousness and justice, God's throne would have no foundation. He would be an illegitimate king. But the requirements of divine justice were filled. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. The sins of the unjust did not go unpunished. Christ paid for them when he suffered on the cross. And consequently now, God is able to be just and the justifier of guilty sinners at the same time. We've read John 3.16. Many people can quote it off by heart. But just two verses later, we read, He who believes in him, in Christ, is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the condemnation. Listen carefully. That the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. John 3, 18 to 19. We can see two groups of people here. Those who are not condemned and those who are condemned. The difference is the first group is not condemned because they believed in Christ. And the second group are condemned because they did nothing. That's all you have to do. Do nothing. To which group... Do you belong? You know, whenever the good news of the gospel is preached, it becomes very good news some and very bad news to others. Those who believe, it's good news. The Bible says they've been delivered from the power of darkness and conveyed into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, Colossians 1, 13 to 14. But to those who do nothing, it's very bad news. They will remain condemned in spiritual darkness. So if you're in this second group, please don't take the offer of God's grace lightly. Right now, you can still repent of your sins, trust in Christ's work on the cross, and put your faith in him. But beyond that, nobody can guarantee you anything. Your life hangs on a thin thread that can swing out into eternity at any time. It is appointed for men to die once and after this to judgment. Hebrews 9.27 In the moment that you take your last breath, the offer of God's mercy will disappear. One of, the, one of the devil's most effective lies, particularly to young people, is to convince them there'll be plenty of time to get serious about the spiritual things. Later. You know, you can concentrate on spiritual matters after you've established your career, after you've done some traveling, after you've found the right partner, accumulated some assets, and so on and so forth. But in Luke's gospel, Jesus spoke the parable that warns 
about concentrating on worldly goods and assuming you'll have many, many years to enjoy them. He said, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, what shall I do since I have room, no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will be those things which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. As we close, if you've never trusted in Christ, for your salvation, this is what you should do. Go to him in prayer today. Entreat him to save your soul. Jesus promises in the Bible, the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. John 6, 37. Tell Jesus you have heard that he receives sinners and that you've come in response to his very own invitation. You put yourself wholly and entirely in his hands. Plead with him to forgive you, to deliver you from the guilt and power and the consequences of your sins. Ask him to give you a new heart and plant the Holy Spirit in your soul and to give you the power to be his disciple and his servant from this day forever. Tell these things to the Lord Jesus Christ in your own way and in your own words and may the Lord himself Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you that when Jesus was tempted, he didn't fail. He went on to spectacular success in the mission that you sent him for. Lord, we thank you that because Jesus took upon himself the sins of all who would ever come to him, Lord, we can come to you now without any obstacle, without any barrier. Lord, the gospel of Christ is the power of salvation to all who believe. And Father, we, we pray, Lord, that you will move by your spirit, Lord, to open the eyes of sinners to hear the gospel, that you would open their eyes and open their hearts to receive the truth. Lord, that you will rescue them from the domain of darkness, transfer them into your very own kingdom. And Lord, we pray that you would do that even this very day. Lord, we thank you that Jesus is the conqueror.